You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Esther Rakusin, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. Today, we celebrate the anniversary of Locally Sourced Science. We look forward to another year of presenting conversations and explorations about science. We hope that you take a little time to sit and listen, and maybe lift a glass of your favorite bubbly to toast us on this special day. In this show, we also celebrate another special anniversary. It has been 30 years since the Voyager 1 space probe took a photograph of our planet and beamed it back to Earth. Upon seeing the image, Cornell astronomer Carl Sagan called it the pale blue dot. In honor of the anniversary of the famous image of our planet, locally sourced science contributor Mark Charvari speaks with Cornell astronomer Lisa Kaltenegger. She is the director of the Carl Sagan Institute at Cornell and associate professor in astronomy. Later on in the show, Mark talks with Nick Sagan, the son of Carl Sagan, about his dad's legacy of creating shows such as the series Cosmos that popularized science for the public. We'll also hear the science events calendar. But first, here is Liz Mahood with this week's science news. Hello, locally sourced science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I'm here this week with your science news. Our first story for this week is about how researchers at Cornell University propose to make factors associated with risk prediction more reliable through big data. An illustrative example of risk prediction can be found in the Quebec blackout of 1985, which left 6 million people without power. The blackout was caused by two events. First, a large snowstorm hit the city, followed by a solar flare. Researchers across diverse fields at Cornell have been awarded an NSF Harnessing the Data Revolution Big Idea grant to collect data associated with catastrophic events in order to find trends that could lead to better early prediction systems. This research emphasizes collaborations across such diverse fields as agriculture, space weather, hydrology, and computer science in order to study many diverse types of disastrous events. The next news story features, you guessed it, a robotic hand. While creating robotic hands out of hard materials, such as strong plastic or metal, is fairly commonplace, creating robotic parts out of soft materials is less so. Researchers in the Shepard Lab at Cornell University have created a soft robotic hand that has fingers controlled by hydraulics and has the unique ability to, you guessed it, sweat. The material that the robot fingers are comprised of is unique in that it was created through multi-material stereolithography a process which uses light to cast resin into predetermined shapes. This material creates robotic sweat by allowing water to evaporate through it when temperatures inside the robot reach above 30 degrees Celsius. When temperatures get this high, the material on the inside of the fingers begins to shrink and squeezes water out of the fingers in the process. Through this process, the researchers have made a robotic system that can respond to temperatures without the addition of sensors, as well as regulate its internal temperature without a cooling system. This research was published on January 29th in Science Robotics. Our final news story covers researchers improving America's biggest crop, corn. 
Annually, sweet corn rakes in 40 to $60 million across New York State alone, and even more is grown for usage in animal feed and other processed foods. However, New York does not have the optimal climate for growing corn, as modern-day corn breeds were developed from a tropical plant called teosinte. The growing season in the Northeast is shorter than in the Midwest or South, as cold temperatures prevent farmers from planting early in the year. Additionally, the Northeast is increasingly experiencing frosts and even snowfalls well into the spring, jeopardizing crops that have already been planted. New research from the Stern Lab at Boyce Thompson Institute at Cornell has created crop lines that perform better during cold spells, as well as improve faster afterwards. These lines have increased quantities of a certain enzyme, nicknamed Rubisco, that allows corn to turn carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into sugars. This research was inspired by the finding that Rubisco content drops rapidly in corn leaves that have been exposed to cold. The research article can be found in the December 20th edition of the Plant Biotechnology Journal. I'm Liz Mahood, and that wraps up this week's Science News. Now, as promised, here is Mark Sharvari's conversation with Cornell astronomer Lisa Kaltenegger. Listen carefully, and you will hear the pale blue dot. astrophysicist Carl Sagan, who lived in Ithaca and was a celebrated writer and host of the TV series Cosmos, once said, quote, Look again at that dot. That is here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there, on a mote of dust, suspended in a sunbeam. The picture of that pale blue dot was taken by Voyager 1 in 1990 30 years ago. This is Mark Sharvari. To celebrate this anniversary, I spoke with Professor Lisa Kartenegger, the director of the Corsigan Institute at Cornell University. This year, what's amazing, is already 30 years since we took this image that for me personally 
changed how I see our own planet. Our pale blue dot, as Carl Sagan called it. Because 30 years ago, Voyager 1, the human-made object, the furthest away from us, the object we sent as far out as we could on its path to the next star, looked back before it left on its path out of our solar system and took a photograph of our own planet. That's the pale blue dot image. And it gets me because what you see is this tiny dot of light suspended in the darkness of the cosmos. I love our planet. Our planet is beautiful. You see all these very different regions, life forms, wherever you want to go. But seeing it from a vantage point of space, seeing how beautiful but at the same time fragile it is, as Carl Sagan mentioned a long time ago when he described this image beautifully, poetically, it basically tells me that we have to take better care of our planet, the only home we've ever known. My name is Lisa Kaltenegger. I'm the director of the Carl Sagan Institute here at Cornell. And my dream is to find life in the universe. And what is so exciting about our time is that we're close to figuring out whether we're alone in the universe. And so I think it's really fitting that we celebrate the anniversary of the pale blue dot image in a time where we start to wake up to our responsibility to actually take care more of the environment, to be a steward of this planet and not just use its resources. And I know a lot of people are trying to do that and are happy to protect our beautiful planet. And with that in mind, I find it fascinating that during this time, we now have our eyes on other worlds, on maybe other pale blue dots. So what we do here at the Carl Sagan Institute of the Cornell is we are putting a team together from different departments to really be able to ask the right questions of how we can find life in the universe. So we are developing the forensic toolkit to find life in our solar system and outside by using the tools in biology and chemistry and astronomy and engineering and also tools of how we communicate this excitement of science. So all of this needs to go into this toolkit of how to uncover, to spot life out there in the cosmos. And to me, that's one of the most amazing discoveries humankind will ever make, figuring out whether or not we are alone. Voyager 1 was launched in 1977, and it is to date the furthest away human-made object. So it's the satellite that we have sent the furthest away from us of all the satellites we've ever made. And so just to think that there is a satellite leaving our solar system on its path out there to the next stars, I think is really exciting. One thing, of course, is it has the golden record on it. 
And the golden record has these musical pieces and also a lot of different imagery to try to encompass what humankind is all about, what is, of course, an amazing feat to try to even define that. And they had only a couple of weeks when they put this together for the launch in 77 here at Cornell. Carl Sagan being the lead of the whole team and the amazing Andrewing being part of the team, trying to figure out how we could actually even encompass what humanity is, not just the Western world, but just, you know, how do you describe us, what we stand for, especially if you don't have that much space, because remember, we're in 77. So they put it on a record. Voyager 1 launched in 1977. It blasted off into space to uncover the secrets of the gas planets that hadn't been really uncovered or really explored until then. And it basically done what it was supposed to do scientifically in 1990. And so the last thing it did before it went on its path out of our solar system is to look back to look at our home, at the Earth, but also at the other planet it could see in our own solar system. And so we call it a family portrait of the worlds in our solar system. And what's to me fascinating is that to this date, this image we have of the pale blue dot is actually the furthest away image we've ever taken of our own planet and so it's a bit further away than Saturn. The image of our own Earth that Voyager 1 recorded has been taken from an incredible 4 billion miles away. That's a vast distance. And so the Earth that you see is this speckle of light, this tiny dot. And Carl Sagan describes it beautifully, suspended in a sunbeam. Because in the image, you see the vastness, the blackness of space, and then this tiny dot of light suspended in the stripe of light, what's basically the residuals on the image from the sun, from the bright objects. And so to me, that image is incredible because it shows the Earth in a completely different light instead of it being this huge, robust thing that we basically bombard with everything we think we need and <laughs> that we have all the outgassing and all the CO2 we do, you see it as this tiny dot of light that shelters all of us. And so our mission to protect it, I think, is paramount and encapsulated, especially in this pale blue dot image that was taken 30 years ago. Another question that fascinates me, how did we get a photograph back from such a long distance? So Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 were actually designed to do scientific measurements uh, of the giant planets, so the outer solar system. So on board of it was actually um, an antenna that could send back that information. 
And so the antennas were designed to be able to send us those pictures back. But right now, it'd be really fascinating to know how it would see the Earth right now and if it would actually still see it because we are far away from Voyager 1 now and the cameras are not that great. Remember 1977? You probably don't have a digital camera from that time anymore. <laughs> so I think that image, the pale blue dot image, if we could have that from even further away, that would be another beautiful reminder of our place in the cosmos. But what's really exciting is that we're starting to take those images of worlds that orbit other suns, other stars. And even so now, those worlds have to be quite big, like Jupiter, for us to be able to spot them with the biggest telescopes on Earth. But with the new telescopes we're building on the ground and the ones we're going to launch into space as the follow-up of Hubble, like, for example, the James Webb Space Telescope, we should be able to catch such a glimpse of a rocky world like ours at just the right distance that it could have water on its surface and maybe life, hopefully, will have the next images of pale blue dots or pale yellow or orange or green dots, you know, I like biology in any color it comes, pretty soon of other worlds. To answer this question that for me has followed me around for quite a while, just wondering whether or not we're alone in the universe. So hopefully we will know it within our lifetime. Within our lifetimes? That's exactly why we built the Carl Sagan Institute here at Cornell to get this done. So since you mentioned the telescopes, I was just reading that this week a telescope was shut down. So can you tell us a little bit about it? It seemed like everybody was so sad and it's like losing a friend. Especially in this case for the Spitzer Space Telescope, it is an orbit that actually separates it more and more and more from us, from the Earth. It's on an Earth trailing orbit. And so it's always harder and harder and harder to catch its signal. So we have to get to bigger and bigger antennas to get to receive its message. And so at one point that becomes incredibly expensive. And there's only a certain budget we have for all the missions. And so to be able to fly new ones and discover new things and put new instruments and ask new science questions, we sometimes have to let go of older instruments. And so because there's such an attachment of all these first discoveries, Spitzer, for example, has made many breakthrough discoveries on other worlds, so planets around other stars, other Jupiters that are extremely hot, wind speeds, where they are, how the atmosphere composition is, or what's in their air. And so it's always with a crying eye that scientists send this last message to a spacecraft to shut down, to go into safe mode because we'd love to keep running them forever. So for us as scientists, it's always this hard, hard, hard question. When we have to let go of a telescope, 
or of an instrument on a satellite that in a way becomes a little bit like a friend. And, and so saying goodbye becomes harder and harder. Uh, but it did amazing work, made amazing discoveries. And now we're looking forward to the next one that's going to go up and do the next thing. So Carl Sagan Institute is five years old this year. So what's happening this year? Can you tell us a little bit what the listeners can expect and where they can find information about some of the events that are open to the public? It's crazy. The Carl Sagan Institute is now five years old here at Cornell, and we will celebrate in style. So on May 2nd, there's going to be a public event for anyone who's interested, anybody who's curious, anyone who wants to come and ask questions, where we will talk about... Um, the search for life, so other planets and what we're trying to figure out, which kind of measurements we want to take and what's our best shot at finding out whether we're alone. But we're also going to talk about volcanoes, how important they are here on the Earth and on other worlds to actually give life a good head start. And our own planet and its future and bioengineering bacteria that might be able to eat CO2 and help us out. And of course, how we really want to bring all of this to everyone who's interested. This is not for scientists in an ivory tower. This is for everyone, for you and me, for anyone who's curious. And we'll think about other things too, like how music and how the performing arts are actually thinking about exactly that, the search for life in space or whether there's other life or our pale blue dot. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So the amazing Andrewian Emmy Award-winning writer and producer of, for example, the Cosmos series, she will give the distinguished Carl Sagan lecture on May 2nd at 7 p.m. So if you're in Ithaca at 3 p.m., there's going to be the science talks, which tell you everything new about the search for life in space and our own world as well. And then at 7 p.m., there's going to be Andrewian talking about Cosmos, possible new worlds. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Lisa. Thanks for having me. You are listening to the anniversary edition of Locally Sourced Science. Do you have an upcoming science event or news piece that you would like to tell us about? tweeted us at FLX Science Radio. Also, check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. You can also subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. This is Mark Sharvari for Locally Sourced Science. The Finger Lakes is the home of so many fantastic scientists and science storytellers. I attended an event in Cinemapolis, in Ithaca, honoring Carl Sagan and Rod Serling, two well-respected science storytellers. Rod Serling is most known for his science fiction anthology television series The Twilight Zone. Carl Sagan was an astrophysicist and a powerful storyteller who influenced many of us with his books and TV series Cosmos. The event was titled Bridging Imagination and Science, and it was organized by the History Center of Tompkins County. I spoke with event organizer Rod Howe, who is the former executive director of the History Center, 
and I also talked to Carl Sagan's son, Nick Sagan, who's a novelist and a screenwriter. Thank you, Rod, and welcome everyone to Rod Serling and Carl Sagan, Bridging Imagination and Science. I'm so glad you're going to support the History Center today and help us celebrate two of Ithaca's favorite sons. There's so can you tell me a little bit about this event today? How did you get these fun and interesting people yeah, together in know, one room? Um, for some reason in my head, I was just starting to put together Carl Sagan and Rod Serling, thinking about they brought different things to this issue of integrating science, culture, imagination, and wonder. So it was just sort of like a dream I had. And I, when I reached out to Nick, and Anne, they were both very willing to come on board. And part of the thought was too that, you know, being with the History Center, we think about the past, present, and future all the time. And they wove in that continuum of past, present, and future in their in their works, whether it's science fiction, fiction through their TV shows. Um, so, and and the fact that they were both oriented to this place, this region, it just made it really easy to think about putting together a session. And when we started having these discussions with Anne and Nick, and then when Mason brought in, we realized how relevant what they were trying to do is still to today, this, this need to think about science and how it can inform decisions that we're making about the future. So it was, it, it, and I, I think it played out very well in the event. Science communication, they always say that start with a story. Do you think your father, Carl Sagan, was a good science communicator because he told stories a lot? I think he was uh, probably the best science communicator, uh, certainly that I know of. And mm -hmm. a lot of it comes from an understanding of storytelling, or at least how to reach us on an emotional or even a spiritual level. I don't mean spiritual in terms of uh, you know organized religion, but the idea that uh, that there is a kind of deep connection to the universe that all of us experience and to wake us up and allow us to, to feel the same kind of wonder that we did as primates, like looking up at the sky, trying to figure out what is it all about. And if you can reach people on that level, you can, you can inspire them and give them a sense of wonder that's uh, otherwise very hard to do. So you also talked about the scientific process and how that's very important because it's a truth finding. So can you elaborate a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Well, the, the science, one of the things that I love about it, that he loved about it so so well, uh, so much, is the, uh, the, the humility at the core of the scientific method. Mm -hmm. The idea that you pursue the truth wherever it leads, and that you can be wrong, and that you can be humble enough to say, you know what, I really thought this theory was true, my hypothesis turns out to be wrong, now let's go find out what's actually true. And he would famously say that this doesn't happen very often in religion or politics, mm -hmm. and there's just, science is a search for truth, and a kind of belief system that you have to follow it at the expense of your own pride. And so, you know, let's let's find out what's real and not what we pretend. So did your dad use storytelling at home when he tried to convince you about something that you didn't really believe in? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the times when he was most convincing to me as a child, because of course of parent-child, yeah, he would tell stories very often in terms of that. There's a whole neuroscience study of, study of storytelling, which is how do stories affect us? 
And when you're talking normally, you have a, a conversation, your brain reacts to data as it reaches it. It reaches the uh, Broca Center and the Wernicke Center, and they both light up. And so the same parts in my brain as I'm talking about something will light up in your brain, but it's just an exchange of information. And so there are certain barriers to that. So if we're talking about, um, if there's a, you know, it's like a, a, a message I want to say that, that uh, prejudice is, is a bad thing, for example, you'll respond to that as you would just from normal conversation. You'll either agree or you'll disagree or whatever your factors are. But if I tell you a story, and the story is about a character who's the victim of prejudice, and you start to feel what they experienced as they went through it, your brain, which is designed to receive stories, will react in a much deeper fashion. Different parts of the brain will light up. If I talk to you about something visual, the visual centers will light up something. The smell of something, your olfactory center will light up. If you talk about falling, your brain will understand what it is to fall if you've fallen before, and it'll do kind of a dry run. And so because more is happening, it allows for that message to hit you on a deeper level, and you might internalize it in a different way, and then you can make changes from that you wouldn't otherwise you would just throw up barriers to a normal conversation. So there's something kind of wonderful about stories' ability to put people in other people's shoes and connect it to that. Empathy is a function of storytelling. They've studied like the best way to instill empathy in children is to read to them, because the first time your brain starts to go, oh, like I wouldn't like that situation, or I like that character, and why did that character feel that way? And we connect with them, we understand them, and it helps us understand. So. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nice talking. You just heard Mark Charvari's conversation with Rod Howe, the former director of the History Center in Tompkins County, and with Nick Sagan, the son of Cornell astronomer Carl Sagan. Now, here is this week's science calendar. The Paleontological Research Institution presents Darwin Days from Saturday, February 8th to Saturday, February 15th. This year's theme for Darwin Days is the power of pollination. There are a variety of events happening around Ithaca to celebrate Charles Darwin's birthday. On Saturday, February 8th at 2 p.m., see the film Wings of Life at Cinemopolis at 120 East Green Street in Ithaca. In this film, you'll get up close and personal with pollinators, butterflies, hummingbirds, bees, and bats. Sunday, February 9th at 2 p.m., take a tour of the Liberty Hyde Bailey Conservatory at 236 Tower Road on the Cornell campus. See cool plants and learn about how they are pollinated. Monday, February 10th at 6 p.m., hear a panel discussion on the diverse world of pollinators. It takes place at the Tompkins County Public Library, 101 East Green Street in Ithaca. Tuesday, February 11th at 7 p.m., attend Darwin's Cabaret with Dr. Anuraj Agrawal at the Tompkins County Public Library. Wednesday, February 12th at 6 p.m., there's a lecture by Dr. Rob Raguso of Cornell called Perfumes and Pollinators. It takes place in Malat Hall, 301 Tower Road in Ithaca on the Cornell campus. Thursday, February 13th at 7 p.m., attend Darwin's Trivia Challenge at the Rheinhaus Bar at 632 West Seneca Street in Ithaca. And finally, on Saturday, February 15th, from 10 to 1, it's Darwin's Family Day at the Museum of the Earth at 1259 Trumansburg Road in Ithaca. To find out more about all these events, go to priweb.org. And that's all for this week's Science Calendar. I'm Esther Rakusin. 
You've been listening to the Anniversary Edition of Locally Sourced Science. I produced this show. Mark Charvari produced the interviews with Dr. Lisa Kaltenegger and Nick Sagan. Liz Mahood produced the science news. Music was from Joe Lewis, Blue Dot Sessions, and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. If you would like to become a contributor to our show, write to us at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. Science out. <laughs>